Welcome to ABC Cafe. My name is Anthony Apodaca, and this is Daniel Trigg. And today we are going to be talking with Jess Laporte. She's a community activist, heavily involved with the People for Police Accountability. We had uh, a lot of fun on this interview yeah, and really, learned a lot. And definitely always learned a lot. But uh, yeah, she's just uh, an incredible person. Um, really, we get a, a nice background on her um, and the, this whole movement. And it was really, really, really good. And uh, yeah, so they've put together a resolution, which um, they're currently collecting signatures for. So in the episode, we talk a little bit about how to be involved in that. And there's show links um, to that in the show notes as well. Um, but yeah, that resolution has momentum. It's sponsored by the Peace and Justice Center, the ACLU Vermont, Women's Justice and Freedom Initiative, and the Battery Park Movement, Vermont Racial Justice Alliance, uh, to name a few. Yeah. I think this is really important work that they're doing to give greater um, community control over over the Burlington Police Department yeah. and um, Some public oversight and yep. meaningful public oversight. And I, I yep. we hope you enjoy the episode. Jess Laporte, thank you for joining us on ABC Cafe. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. No, I really appreciate you coming down. Where did you come in from? Um, I drove up by way of Waterbury from Duxbury, Vermont. I don't even know where that is. I'm relatively new to Vermont and Duxbury. I just know like I like saying it. <laughs> yeah, um, just think Waterbury, Vermont. <laughs> Waterbury, okay. <laughs> You can't send packages to Duxbury, Vermont. That's all I have. You to can't say. send packages. <laughs> it's there, a no post office town. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. So, could you just give us a little bit of background on who you are and how you became? And um, we're going to talk a little bit about policing. And so, I was wondering, you know, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be sort of concerned, involved in in policing in Burlington, and specifically. Yeah, well, the Cliff Nose version is that I grew up in Stowe, Vermont, um, raised in my mom's big French-Canadian family that was from Stowe. And I uh, went to school there all growing up, uh, surrounded by family. And my sister and I are the only two black people in our family. We're both uh, biracial, our father's Haitian, and our mom is French-Canadian. And we grew up probably with more of a awareness of being poor in a rich town than being black. And I think that speaks a lot to the racial awareness of Vermont, because <laughs> that factor right. wasn't really talked about. Um, fast forward, went to boarding school, and uh, ended up in college studying international relations and moved to Haiti. Um, and I when did there, you move to Haiti? What year? Uh, 2014. And I lived there for six years and I moved back to Vermont in the height of the pandemic. It was actually my plan. It was not COVID related. (laughs) It was like, that was my plan to leave. The Um, pandemic, I got to get back there. (laughs) Yeah. They're doing great. (laughs) Yeah. So that I kind of get plopped back into Vermont in a really interesting moment um, where I as an individual have grown a lot in my racial identity over the years, um, especially grappling with grappling with the complexity of privilege, um, being a light skinned black woman in Haiti. Um, And then, you know, we're all hanging out at home. And then this moment happens for the country which does translate to here in Vermont, where people are talking about policing, they're talking about racial justice, they're talking about equity issues. And quite honestly, my sister and I, you know, 
knew that we wanted to go to the large rally down in Montpelier. Mm-hmm. Um, we went, we showed up, we had our signs and somebody in the crowd said, you know, if you're black or a person of color, like come more towards the front. And we're actually already kind of at the speaker level. We had kind of walked up the hill and we're at the speaker level at the Capitol. And I said to my sister, are we going to say anything? Right. And I think that moment was an interesting one for us because we had a distinct realization that we were in this like intergeneration. Many of the people on the mic being Gen Z, being younger than us, and That's telling some really. <laughs> I'm like, I'm so, lost. I'm so lost. There's so many names for like it. Gen Z. Like, I don't know what that one means. <laughs> yeah. But we were distinctly aware of really the youth and young adult presence at, in this moment that had galvanized the entire protest that day. And we were aware of an absence of kind of older black Vermonters. There were a few that came up to the mic. But in that moment, I think. I felt like I had something I wanted to say. My sister felt like she had something she wanted to say. And kind of moving forward from that moment was really both community. So finally being in connection and community with other Vermonters of color. Mm -hmm. And also kind of a like, there's no going back. And I know that I was seeking. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And... I know that I was seeking that and coming back. I mean, coming from a black nation back into Vermont, I was like, I can't just have white friends. I want to care about these issues. We didn't grow up around black community and I can't bring my black immigrant husband here to be friends with like a bunch of white kayakers. Right. (laughs) (coughs) All right. Sorry. Okay. Why not? That seems awesome. (laughs) What's wrong with kayaking? I mean, I, mean, <laughs> I enjoy kayaking. Actually, my husband enjoys kayaking too. A beach that we right. love in Haiti has kayaks. But right. Agree so to disagree. That seems like a non-issue to me. But let's let's move on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very petty. Very petty of me. Yeah. Um, so I just want to, can we go backwards a little bit? Because you said mm-hmm. something of being a light-skinned black woman in Haiti. And I would, yeah, I, I would, I would love to know just a little bit more about your experience moving to Haiti and kind of being, I guess I'm assuming it was being black in a different way because Mm -hmm. you weren't Haitian in that cultural sense. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know. I'm I'm curious about that experience because yeah, if if you don't mind talking about it. Yeah. Um, how long is this podcast? As long as we want. want. That's the great thing about it. It's, it could be as long as we want, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, my racial identity development, which often happens for uh, black people and people of color who are raised in white settings, it often happens a bit more delayed in terms of the more positive aspects of racial identity development, where you're beginning to understand, in my case, blackness, what that means, the ways that you've actually been taught to fear or not value these qualities of blackness. And the many, many things that we all know that we are not taught in school. Mm -hmm. And so I think the positive parts of that really started for me. I had a great friend group in in high school. They were wonderful people of color. And they were just like, you're lost, but we'll still be your friend. (laughs) Then that developed more into college of really digging into these things. And when I arrived in Haiti, I definitely already had an awareness of um, colorism and the ways in which 
black people who are able to assimilate to white dominant culture and also have particular doors maybe opened to them um, are often used as a tool of oppression against black people who are highly marginalized and not in that same connection space. And going to Haiti was like taking whatever that divide I had already started to grapple with and just blowing it up. Yeah. Because I can't what even imagine. <laughs> yeah, what you're looking at there is a country that has been intentionally occupied and oppressed because it was the first black nation. And also for me, you know, right, I talked about growing up poor in a rich right. town, but also de dealing with my own wealth, dealing with my own financial capacity in Haiti. And so I think a lot of that experience, my experience actually mirrored the type of growth and learning experience that a lot of white people need to go through. It yeah. gives me empathy for that. And it gives me an entry point to understand what that process looks like for people because it was learning to sit and listen. Mm -hmm. to follow leadership of Haitian individuals, community groups, organizations. It was learning to couch my own opinions and actually be willing to be a, a passenger and therefore become an ally and a partner in whatever that they wanted to do without my own preconceived notions. And so there I had my work life, which always was dealing with those power and privilege dynamics. And I worked particularly in marginalized communities in Haiti, which is like a whole other level of um, wealth disparity, mm -hmm. opportunity services than we even see here in the States. And then I also had my life in Haiti, which was largely informed by this community organizing network called Combit Soleil Leve in City Soleil, Haiti. And that was where I learned what I would call here mutual aid. That's where I learned to sit and listen, to provide whatever time and resources that I had in an open-handed way to be able to be influenced by these leaders who were really positive change examples in their community, confronting a myriad of issues, um, but doing so collectively and in a way of just saying like, banding together in a very divided neighborhood. So I feel like I got to be a great student. And I think it was important in my own journey, because even here in Vermont, like when we talk about something like policing, I have a really healthy distance and boundary and barrier from the, the police. Mm -hmm. Um through the positionality of some of my life circumstances, the way I appear, my very assimilated voice and mannerisms, and I like kayaking. Um, you know, <laughs> the so kayaking thing is critical. <laughs> yeah, that's just, gonna come up a lot. I just walk around with a, I just walk around with an oar. Uh, please don't mess with you if you've got a kayaking paddle. It's weird. It's weird. They are concerned about a cell phone in your hand, but not, not a kayaking a, not paddle. No. They're fine exactly. with that. It's got a blade on it. All right. <laughs> That's that's really interesting, that's you know. For yeah. for you know, for my part, I think a, a big part of my journey, as you know, thinking through a lot of different issues, was travel and being embedded in different cultures, because it's just such a you, you can't not deal with it, you know. Like you have to kind of step back and 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 reevaluate what your life has been about. Yeah, yeah. Like it's really hard to avoid that, you know. You know, when I was nineteen, I spent like three months in Beirut, Lebanon. And that's not six years, but, you know, that was like, 
I was feel walking like around <laughs> the streets of Beirut by myself <laughs> with, I wasn't living there alone, but I, you know, I would just walk around and talk to people and like make friends with the different people that worked in the coffee shops. And it was just like, I have no way to like categorize how my life has been compared to theirs in a sense. And so I had to, yeah. that was a huge part of my reevaluation of my upbringing, which I know we didn't want to, this isn't to talk about myself, but I do, it's, I think it's, a, I just trying to make a connection here because mm-hmm. it was so, it was so profoundly important for me that, that moment, especially coming from mm-hmm. a very conservative religious upbringing where, you know, I was just taught that gay people were sinning, yeah. you know? So yeah. I had like huge hurdles to overcome as an adult because I was yeah. so brainwashed as a child. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, and it's not a laughing matter. Laugh so you don't cry. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. I laugh so I don't Nervous cry. Nervous laughter that's, is that's, acceptable. That's, <laughs> I do it often. That's what comedians do. Yeah. So, but yeah, yeah, it's it's a profound experience and it's, a, it's something that I haven't quite figured out how to replicate and and when I see people and look around, who are the kind of most mature people I know or the sort of, I don't know, most developed in their own understanding and stuff? Like when I look around, like a lot of those people have travel as like a key mm-hmm. thing under their belt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And not just yeah, like, you know, I, I did like a, I, I went like backpacking in Europe during, you know, after college kind of travel, you know what I mean? Like. <laughs> Like oh I like I'm I, still waiting for somebody to fund that trip for me. So. Yeah, yeah same, if exactly. you're out same. there. <laughs> no, and like for me, I I grew up in New York City, like, and so I was always very acutely aware. I mean, just by circumstance, just living there, like I was one of like two white kids in my high school, in my junior high school, like the opposite. It was like yeah, and and <laughs> and and all just just um uh. Completely, you know, uh, black, Hispanic, you know, like Asian, like everything, you know, New mm-hmm. York City, right? Um, and so, like for me, like I, I found myself identifying with no other culture. I mean, not my culture at all, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it made me nervous when I like moved because I went to Bennington College, <laughs> and it made me nervous. Like, where where are all my friends? You know, who are like, all these idiots kayaking? <laughs> That was basically. Yeah, it was. Yeah, <laughs> but like it. Always, I'm always uncomfortable around um, in diversity. I don't know, like with the opposite of diversity. Yeah, the ninety nine percent of Vermont. Vermont yeah. yeah, no, it is kind of interesting. Once once you have a certain sort of like expectation of diversity, like it yeah. is. I had that same thing moving here, like because I I came from. I had different experiences. We don't need to get into now, but. Mm-hmm. It, I was living in Brooklyn for a while and I lived in Seattle. Then like I moved here and it was kind of annoying. Yeah. You know, cause I was just like, this is weird. <laughs> like where is, you know, and everyone's so uniform falls in line. And anyway, yeah. we'll cut all this part out yeah. of the podcast. Yeah. Let's yeah. get back That's to the, no, no, no. That's We're good. done it's, flexing. It's a, it's a great, um, <laughs> no, I, it's really helpful background. Yeah. I think it's really helpful. Mm-hmm. So Absolutely. I hope our listeners enjoy that piece. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the pol- People for Police Accountability mm-hmm. and that advocacy group, I guess you would call it, maybe. Well, I don't yeah, know. What, I know. Activist what group. is it? What is it? So that's We're, my question. What is it? Yeah. Who Who's we? in it? And who are, who are these people? There's no names on the website. Yeah. Go. I wonder why. <laughs> um, yeah. So People for Police Accountability, um, as it currently stands, really kind of formed in February of 2021. Um after the mayor had uh, vetoed the community control of police proposal that was on the ballot. Um, So really, a lot of this starts, 
you know, last summer, obviously in across Burlington and across Vermont, people were more engaged in this conversation, you know, hashtag Black Lives Matter, but this conversation about public safety, policing in our country. And, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, but it's Vermont. We don't have those problems there. But like the data tells us we have the same problems. We have the same uh, school to prison pipeline. We have the same disparities in traffic stops. We have the same disparities in in um, imprisoning Vermonters, you know. Mm-hmm. So we have the same. We're, we're a reflection of the rest of the country um, in a lot of ways, even though we're not a very racially diverse state. And. Through as those pro- protests gained momentum in on August 25th, what became known as the Battery Park Movement launched in um, with a protest and a call for folks to really stay out overnight in Battery Park. And that movement uh, lasted for 30 plus days and started to include, you know, nightly marches and rallies. And if you live in the area, you were f- probably familiar with it. Um, yet it's always surprising to me the the very disconnect of what the movement was about and what a lot of rhetoric and conversation was about. I think particularly with like Democrats and people who consider themselves liberal, but um, we're just so quick to distrust to distrust an autonomous zone that was working to really like with a scalpel like, bring up these issues in the city. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if it wasn't for the pressure put on the city from that direct action, I don't, there are a number of things from the racial justice revolution in June of 2020 that were kind of already starting to get swept under the rug by August and September. It's amazing how quickly that, that was just like, oh man, that thing, George Floyd, that was like two months ago. What are you guys doing? And so it's like that momentum was, I, yeah, I sense that in, in as well. Yeah. And I think it speaks to the importance of direct action and of protest in the public discourse, because Mm -hmm. we have these very pre-prescribed ways that we can interact with our elected officials once they're in office. And, many of them don't create pressure. Mm -hmm. There's a difference between having a conversation and creating the pressure that kind of galvanizes change. Mm -hmm. And so during those protests and like, oh my gosh, we can't fire these three officers. What came back over and over and over again was in the city charter, only the chief of police can decide discipline for officers. So hiring, firing, everything. And the city council said, passed a resolution pretty much unanimously saying, the Charter Change Committee should look at this issue and concerned residents of Burlington and people who recreate and work there were like, great. And so we showed up to all of the meetings. Were they public? Yes. Were we welcome? Probably not so much. Um, And so it really resulted in this proposal that had a lot of community member input, both in those public moments and also through um, some city councilors really soliciting that. And it passed the city council. And then on on December 31st, in a truly dick move, I'm trying to decide what name to use for him. Sorry, <laughs> Bear Weinberger <laughs> um, vetoed that proposal. Yeah. And the proposal was just to put on the ballot for the city of Burlington to vote on this potential on charter, charter change. Right. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. even right? to make it a wasn't, move. It was yeah, to we think if we're going to make a move, exactly. let's try it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think after that, there was a moment of 
do we even pursue this, right? So People for Police Accountability is the group of people who said, we want this to go on the ballot. We want to know what Burlington residents think about having a meaningful community oversight model for the police. Mm -hmm. And there are so many other branches of the work that needs to happen around policing. But Mm -hmm. this group specifically said, we're actually not going to let the mayor have the final word. That's fundamentally not democratic. Yeah. (laughs) So we are going to look at what the options are to get this on the ballot to allow Burlington uh, voters Mm -hmm. to weigh in on it. And that's what we've been up to is both going back to the proposal, um, soliciting feedback from a number of like-minded organizations, organizations working in racial justice around the area, um, making very minor changes ultimately to that proposal that passed in December, and then launching a petition uh, to collect, I think we need just under 2,000 signatures in order for it to get on the ballot. Right on. So let's, we could talk more, I'd like to talk, I'd like to talk more about the, um, the actual resolution and what's in it. Yeah, definitely. But like maybe as a lead up to that, we can spend a little bit of background talking about the. Um, sorry, I just pointed up my notes here. Uh, the current uh, BTV Police Commission and its mm-hmm. limitations, and then also what you think is the problem with the Burlington Police and policing in general. And yeah, I guess like what's the impetus for community control other than? I mean, obviously, it sounds like a good idea, but yeah. like uh, yeah. specifically, you know, what what are the limitations with the current commission and 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 the, the problems with policing in Burlington as you see them? Uh, yeah, so I wouldn't put all the onus on limitations with the current commission. I think it's actually very systemic in City Hall, sure, <laughs> um, in sure. Burlington. So, um, the specific limitations for our current police commission are the charter. The charter says that the chief of police has the sole hiring, firing, disciplinary power of the city. So that limits the police commission. That also limits the mayor, technically, though he's often known a lot about these incidents before they're public. Um, It also limits the city council and any other body, like if there were some other public safety body, like the there is a public safety committee, I think, out of city council. The charter overrules all of that. Mm-hmm. Right. So there aren't really actually any powers we can give to any individual person aside from changing the charter. Right. But, so they're just a commission with no actual power to do anything. And, you know, they're like advisors that yeah. like have no ability to actually make a decision and mm-hmm. have no control. Well, they are explicitly an advisory council. Right. And they are they are Burlington uh, residents and there are provisions around that. And they're mostly looking at the human resources or kind of if you are like the structure of the police department. So they review things like body cam footage and they um, can make, they can do research, they can hire consultants. They've had a consultant that was looking at public safety opinions and how to broaden public input into those, those conversations. Um, They can, they also look at things like, de-escalation tactics, what should the training be? What should the policy be in the human resources handbook? And ultimately, you would think that what the policy is for that, when somebody doesn't follow that, there would be consequences. Mm -hmm. But the, the larger issue in Burlington is that there is no accountability for the police department. Right. Because they're in charge of their own accountability. Yes. They, the um, internal review 
board looks at, you know, cases of misconduct. Those are police officers in the yep. the yeah. the PD uh, actually doing that research. The chief of police is going to make a decision. Uh, obviously, you know, might hear from the mayor, might hear from the police commission, might hear from the city council. But even the racial justice resolution uh, was intended to have language calling for officers to be fired, but the city attorney wouldn't let that stand. Right. right. So right. nobody has. None of these elected officials have control over when things go wrong with the police. Mm -hmm. And we have a demonstrated pattern of Mayor Weinberger being informed of misconduct on all levels, mm. of being informed of maybe heightened violent incidents that happened, misconduct by former police chiefs, mm -hmm. all kinds of things, being informed. Mm -hmm. And his choices and his actions of what to do in those incidents do not display a, a desire to hold people accountable or for the public to be not, like informed and brought into that process. He has really demonstrated a backdoor deal approach to these issues. Right. And a part of the issue, too, is former police chiefs from Burlington who have had either violent incidents happen under their watch, been inappropriate with social media, they've got on to state appointments yeah. in our public safety commission at the state level. Yeah. So you're, they don't only... failing up. Yeah. <laughs> failing up. Oh, <laughs> it would be so nice to be a white police officer Oof. and fail up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I think it's that nexus, but the, the thing that is interesting is when the proposal was up in December... Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, the same city councilors who mostly unanimous, unanimously voted that we needed to look at the charter, we needed to change the charter, all of a sudden started saying, well, couldn't this be an ordinances? Couldn't this be a resolution? Should we do it in a referendum or do it in something else? As if there was amnesia of why we had it, we had to go to the charter first. All of these other things can happen. Right. But until the charter changes, it won't hold up in the actual legal proceedings and it won't hold up to the police union. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So can let's let's talk about a little bit about the meat and bones of the resolution. So mm -hmm. we, you know, what specifically is in the resolution and what what are you calling for? Mm hmm. You know. In order to answer that question, we did a lot of research. And by we, I mean a few highly motivated, unpaid individuals who are like, how does this work in other cities? Why is the police commission not an effective mo model or body to do this? And um, I just have to say, the community activists who researched it basically created the same report that um, Attorney Blackwood mm. created for the Charter Change Committee. So they they said, Attorney Blackwood, can you look at these models? Can you look at you know what's strong, what's not strong? And in the end, the two reports were oddly similar in <laughs> what they dug up, but also on depth and knowledge. I mean, right. it really speaks to the wealth of resources we have in our community and how many untapped resources we really have. Um, Are you saying that not just people that went to law school can read and do research? <laughs> oh, my God. What the this hell? This whole time. Um, this whole time? Yeah. <laughs> I've been relying on lawyers. 
I know. And also an element of it is the unpaid labor of it, yeah. right? Like yeah, that's exactly. just, well, we, yikes. Um, but essentially we, we also kind of went to like broad strokes, hmm. what's working, what might not be working. And a part of that was because coming out of kind of early Black Lives Matter is actually where you see police departments doing some of the doing police commissions that are advisory bodies and also um, a series of, you know, a portfolio of reforms, right? Body cam footage, blah, blah, blah. Right. And our question was, what is effective oversight? What would make oversight effective? Because oversight exists in Burlington currently through the police commission in no, a way no teeth exactly yeah yeah and, and their their incentive is to is exactly that right their the incentive of of the police departments of the city of cities is to pretend it's like pretend accountability you know exactly it's basically like putting like one of those like fake plastic steering wheels on like your kids thing in the car so like he can pretend that he's driving and just like oh no no you're, you're important you're doing it bud turn left <laughs> exactly yeah. Yeah. Wow, it's, really, that is a, it's really pedantic and, just, and and that doesn't mean that individual members of the police commissions all across the country and here in burlington don't enter that work in an intention of being effective it's actually that they're not given the powers and the leeway to ultimately enact change i mean you can read right. mark yeah. hughes resignation letter you could talk to police commissioners currently i mean when they fought to get body cam footage from a uh, incident that happened in january where the police officers used excessive force they were barred from getting body cam footage and then they were threatened by name by the police union yeah well why do you have the footage <laughs> yeah what are you afraid of Exactly. So, so it's, I, I just want to be clear. It's not necessarily about individuals. It's, a, you know, this whole systems versus individual thing. Right. It's like, it's not actually about individuals, their intentions, what they want to get done. It's actually that they aren't given the power to do what they want to do. Mm-hmm. Now, when we looked at what would be effective, we were really influenced. We had conversations with ACLU here in Vermont and kind of asked like, also, from your perspective, I guess we're going back to lawyers, but like yeah. from your perspective, what <laughs> has been ones, effective? The good ones, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what are the principles that make it effective? And we brought it down to five um, that are really dominant in this proposal. Mm-hmm. Um, the first is independence. So when these bodies are within the police department, and also don't have a level of independence from the city as well, um, they're not able to have the same leeway to make decisions and they're governed by the interests of those bodies. So independence was one that was really huge. And that's actually something that there weren't um, out there many examples of. Whereas I think um, some of the other principles, they were like, oh, this is what's making this an effective body. But independence was one that seems elusive in a lot of places. Um, the uh, The other ones have to do with discipline and in order to discipline, being able to investigate. So investigatory power, that means the right to evidence, ability to subpoena and conduct independent um, investigations. Right. So actually pulling the, those internal investigations, not all of them, not sure. an officer showing up late to work. Like yeah, yeah. Nobody, I mean, ridiculous. whatever, yeah, deal yeah. with that. That's like personnel issue. But um, dealing with cases of, of misconduct on a, a variety of levels is actually having those investigations be 
independent. Mm -hmm. And because they're able to conduct independent investigations, have more at their fingertips for the decision making, is actually taking disciplinary powers away from the chief of police as the sole decision maker and moving it into this body. Um, And that would mean actually anything from you're suspended, you need to do this professional development, you are fired, (laughs) no questions asked. Um, You don't get a gun anymore. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) There's so many different ways that the powers that an individual police officer has can be curbed even before they lose their employment. Mm -hmm. Um, And then uh, those two kind of, those three really go closely (laughs) together because you can't really do one without the other. Like it doesn't help us to have an independent board that can't subpoena evidence and is just going to make recommendations. Subpoena. That sounds like a lawyer word. (laughs) (laughs) Or like the other one that keeps coming up is, oh, well, Transparency is one of the elements. So it's yeah. a public body. Yeah, transparency, their their yeah. records will be made public, da, da, da. And one of the things we always say is like, they're subject to due process under the law, which is like <laughs> yes. whenever people are like, are they just going to go willy nilly and just like accuse, you know, whoever of doing right. something? It's like, no, they're going to be looking at things like the policies and procedures, right? looking at the conduct, does that match up with the policies and procedures, and then determining the discipline based on those things. And they're not going to, they also have to be subject to like the court of law in this, yeah, you know, in absolutely. this country. Um, right. Yeah. It's, it's, they're not, you're not granting this, you know, commission the power of God. You yeah. Know? It's yeah. like, it's <laughs> not, you're tribunal. not getting like immunity for yeah. like any behavior. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're not the UN. So there's um, four. Right. There's, that's four of the five. Yes. We got one more. Yeah, the fifth is representation. Yeah. And so um, we were really looking at representation because actually, you know, our current police commission is disproportionately black based on our our population um, and maybe not representative of other marginalized identities. So we wanted to acknowledge and surface lived experiences and identities that are more likely to have interacted with policing in a very lived way. And that could be identities like queer identities, in particular trans identities, people of color, right? These visible things, um, people who have experience with being unhoused, um, maybe themselves or supporting people in those situations, um, uh, drug and substance abuse, um, and also looking at some other lived experiences, like if you've been incarcerated or um, a victim of domestic abuse. And so looking at the reality that oftentimes you're going to end up with Black people like myself that are college educated, that have a healthy distance from policing are maybe going to be the black people who can get through onto some of these boards. And it's great right now that the police commission, I do think that a lot of those folks come from a variety of backgrounds, but I think it's that wasn't always the case when the police commission started, that wasn't the case. Mm -hmm. And it's been a reactionary measure. And so wanting to build in representation and also looking at how they get onto the board. So yeah. right now, as we all know, Mayor Weinberger has this like, you know, hot top ten hot black people that I like to call list. And instead saying <laughs> Weinberger's palatable black people list. That's that is actually what it's called. <laughs> that is that is <laughs> what really is that, what it's called. W WPB. Get me the WPB. <laughs> I know it's like an Excel sheet for no reason. Um but You know, it's also looking at decentralizing that appointment process. So we propose that 
city council, obviously, as elected officials could identify community organizations who are really working on like Burlington area things, mm. but also or based here right. um, and have them be the nominators. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So really decentralizing how people get on and not exposing them to a public vote because those very identities, those very lived experiences are exactly why you don't want to run for public office. Right. It's why we can right. have, you know, Zariah Hightower version 2.0, like as a, as a young professional, very yeah. successful. We can't necessarily have like me grow, who grew up in Vermont before I got like the magic fairy dust of a college education sure. and yeah, exactly. whatever. Yeah. Before you became a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I am not a lawyer. Who I'm explicitly a She is a, a lawyer. lawyer. She told me earlier she was definitely a lawyer. I said, are you a lawyer? She said, yes. And it's weird that you're denying it now. Um, yeah, no, I think, I think that's really important to have, um, I would call it a diversity of class interests in addition to just a diversity of skin color. You know, I think mm -hmm. that's that's super important. And it's um, got to be representative of the things that the police are supposed to be policing, right? Or not oh, even supposed to, but do police. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, you that's know what I mean. Yeah, you know, you like know what do I mean. do yeah, yeah. do police and yeah. over over police. Over police. You know? yeah, yeah, and and I did forget one is um, either mental illness or yeah, yeah. well, mental health issues. Maybe not being neuronormative. Just looking right. for these other experiences because all of that impacts what your interaction with the police is going to look like. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, absolutely. Isn't it impact, you know, if you are unhoused, you have a high likelihood of regular interactions with the police. Right. If you ha have like unstable housing, you're going to have a high likelihood of interaction with the police, you yeah. know, especially even just the interaction of like being a black person staying at a friend's house, looking around for their hide a key. Like yeah, yeah, that's yeah. not a chill thing. Like no. I don't like when my white friends are like, there's the hide a key somewhere. No, no, no. I'm like, like hand it to me <laughs> ahead of time. I need to look confident. Right. I need to put that key right in the door and walk in like it's my house and your dog better not bark at me. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. What, what I do is I make people find a series of clues <laughs> throughout throughout my garden and my, you know, my front Definitely door. Around and the windows. Like, and you have to answer riddles. Yeah, you have to answer riddles to find the next clues. You really have to cover the majority of the exterior of my yeah, house yeah. before you could find yeah. your way in. Yeah. And the last clue is I don't actually have a spare key. It's you have to break the fucking window. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Jesus oh, Christ. man. Um, Cool. So that's enough humor for today. Um, yeah. Let's um let's pause for a well, moment. Well, I just wanted to add one more okay, thing yeah, uh, that I found interesting when I was reading about it is that um, it's important that um that one of the people hired to the board or picked for the board was not has no police experience. Oh, it's not yes. a cop. The, the exclusion, not or just the inclusion. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, the, you know, or I'm is glad it like we went friends there. with a cop or family of a cop? You know, like I found that very interesting. Your favorite and, show and, is like <laughs> cops. Cops. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean that one is definitely something that got the most pushback of throughout course. the process um, of sp explicitly both you yourself not being a police officer. I think we also just defined family openly and household mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because I think that definitely impacts your ability to, um, to take in the information that's given to you mm -hmm. and it weighs on who you humanize in the process. Exactly. You know, you yep. know, humanizing 
police officers is actually something that we all are trained to do. Right. And of course, people who are more proximate Such to a hard that. job, you know. I was reading recently that it's, it's like it's not even like the top 10 most dangerous jobs. No. It's like your construction worker is yeah. like more dangerous, basically. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I would love to read that. You send that my way. <laughs> yeah. It's, right. you know. Or submit it, you know, yeah. through the website to us. We'll put it up there. We put up all kinds of things <laughs> on our website. So, um, okay, let's take a quick break mm-hmm. just because I need to stand up for a second and then we yeah. can maybe fin- uh, finish up here. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. All right. <laughs> All right. And we're back. Good break. I got to stretch my legs. There was no ads. <laughs> <laughs> Just thought there would be ads. I was but, hoping um, we don't. We're not even good enough of a podcast to get any ads. So. <laughs> any of you, thirty-five people who listen, yeah, if you want to so, sell something. <laughs> I we talked a lot about the resolution, and I guess I would like to kind of uh, ask you what the status of the resolution is, and what you're doing next, and how people who, especially people who live in Burlington, can can get involved with that. Yeah, so the proposal, as I was mentioning earlier, um, passed the city, got out of Charter Change Committee, um, passed the city council um, with a majority vote, but they didn't get a super majority to be able to block a veto. Um, And so currently, we need signatures. That's the the end of the day, just to get this proposal on the ballot. And it's a charter change proposal. So it would be a ballot question, really similar to just cause and a few other things going through in March. Um, And if if we are able to get, I think it's just under 2000 signatures. Um, Also, fun thing about city politics is it's unclear what the deadline is. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, and right. It, it's both unclear oh, when I'm they're going to make the deadline. Oh, sorry. It looks like you missed it. <laughs> yeah, it's both like, unclear if they're going to like bump it up on us, and it's also unclear if also like your petition um, like uh, expires. So right. fun, yay! So yep. like if we collect signatures now, and then something comes up, and like we can't submit it for March, so yay! But anyways, we need just under two thousand signatures. We probably at this point need you know just under fifteen hundred okay. um, signatures of Burlington registered voters, which is an interesting thing because there are many many people who live in this city, whether they're transient or not. <laughs> I know people who keep their voter registration status as like the purple state that they're from, right? right? Exactly, <laughs> and because yeah. they're like, whatever, we're just going to go blue. And I'm like, we are not a blue state. I don't yeah. know how to tell anyone this. Yeah. But, you know, is actually having uh, people who are registered in Burlington because the petition is compared, the signatures are compared to our voter call. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And if we get those signatures, if we get on the ballot, it's really pulling people out to vote yes to this charter change. And then if it passes based on city politics, then what happens? Are you trying to enter into the dark tunnel of my life? Because I feel like you were like, it seems you're going somewhere dangerous and I want to come with you. Um, The the last 40 minutes was just me buttering you up to like go to the dark side. Yeah. So it is, it's a whole process. I mean, right now we're just trying to get on the ballot because of the mayor's veto. If it passes in the city, um, it'll go to the state and um, the legislature has to um, uphold that uh, change to the city charter. Mm -hmm. And then another executive has the opportunity to veto 
Governor Phil Scott, as he did with the Winooski with the Winooski yeah. voter oh, wow. um, charter change. Right. But luckily, the legislature the legislature upheld that. Yeah. So it's such for a for listeners who might not know, yeah. the Winooski passed a resolution to allow non citizens to vote in local city issues. Right. And then. Scott vetoed it, and then the legislator overrode the veto. So they can now do that, but the yep. veto, the threat of veto always hangs over. And with the city council, I would say it's not obvious that you have that power or the, that the, mm-hmm. you can't always rely on the city <laughs> council, the super, the super yeah. majority yeah. Of, right. of, of the legislative, whatever governing body to do the right thing in that, in that scenario. Exactly. And then it's like, if it gets through that, all that whole gauntlet is when implementation starts to happen. Right. So it's a long horizon. This is a long game. It's a marathon. Always is, yeah. And that was a part of the consideration back in February mm-hmm. is, you know, a charter change vote is not a guarantee that this is going to get implemented. Is it worth our time, energy, and effort? And for us, the answer to that was yes, because based on elected officials' actions and the rhetoric in this city, though it might not align with my beliefs, there is just the reality that Burlington is not ready for abolition. Burlington isn't even ready to follow through on defunding the police. So if you read the room, Mm -hmm. it is incredibly important to acknowledge where this city is. I mean, where our state is, where our country is on this. And then to say, because the police will continue to exist here, how can we put some mechanisms in place to um, protect people and to curb their power? Yeah. Because unfortunately, you know, a community control of police board doesn't prevent harm by yeah. the police from happening. What it does create an opportunity for is for them to be held accountable exactly. for these individual police officers to not be able to wield that same power over and over and over again. Our the Burlington Police Officers Association, our our union, has negotiated that records are striked, I think, after three years. If you think about the That's length insane. of a police officer's yeah. career, record mm-hmm. their records. Yeah. That's insane. Are of these incidents are erased after three years. Mm-hmm. You're not if you're a UVM student, you're not even out of college yet. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Like that's yeah. wild. And so it's about acknowledging where we are as a city and it's about beginning to curb police power. Yeah. In our in how we operate as a city. And I truly believe that without an independent body like this, we will never know the extent of police misconduct in this city. Yeah. Because it is explicitly a part of how many groups who organize around this, who care about victims of police brutality, are absolutely not going to report that to the police. Mm -hmm. People who have been sexually and physically assaulted by police officers in this city are not going to file a complaint at the police Department, you have to walk into the place where your perpetrator is. That's true. I mean, police officers are disproportionately, um, have a disproportionate rate of domestic abuse. There's so many elements where we actually don't have the full story yet. And so I think that's the potential of this mechanism and why it remained important to pursue it, knowing that it's a journey to even get to this. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And I, you know, am I disappointed that Burlington isn't in a place to actually invest in alternative public safety structures? Yeah. Of course. Would I want us to defund the police? Yes. Yeah. Am I fighting for those things? Yes. But I also am reading the room. Mm-hmm. And I think many people understand that this is a step in a longer journey that our city, our state, and our country like really need to take in order to actually move somewhere meaningful. Yeah. Yeah, so that's actually an interesting segue because one of the things I wanted to touch on was if you were working on any other alternative things besides that. So, for example, um, there's police abuse, which is one thing, but there's also just things that police do that we say, yeah, you should be doing that, but that are actually harmful too. Like, for example, uh, anything to do with the enforcement of the war on drugs. Right. (laughs) Right. So, you know what I mean? Like a a cop arresting someone for having drugs on them and then putting them into a cycle, into the prison cycle is an injustice. It's just not Mm -hmm. it's not a police abuse necessarily, you know, because because we're 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 telling them to do that and then applauding them. Right. So I think um, and this is I I do have to read this because this I I specifically I just want to there's a lot of ways you could look at it, like through poverty or through the war on drugs or through the criminalization of sex work or like whatever. But I just had to, I, as I was re- doing research for this, um, I, I was reminded of this. There's two quotes. This goes back to the, the war on drugs from the Nixon administration. Um, so let's see. This is from um, Alex Vitel's book called The End of Policing. Um, so he writes, uh, Nixon's chief of staff, H.R. Bob Haldeman, infamously wrote in his diary about the way President Nixon, quote, emphasized that you have to face the fact that the whole problem is really the blacks. The key is to devise a system that recognizes this while not appearing to. Nixon's chief domestic policy advisor, John Ehrlichman, also said in an interview with Dan Baum that the war on drugs was a political lie. And this, this, this quote is from Harper's Magazine, 2016. Mm-hmm. And he, he says, the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we, make it, we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could attempt to disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. The end of the quote. Fuck. So, <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. And so I guess, you know, what we were talking about before, before you came on is like, where is there a push or how can we push to say like, let's just legalize the things that the police are arresting people for in the first place. You know, if the police are four times more likely to search through your car because you're black, well, what are they looking for? They're looking for drugs. Like what other pretense could there be? Mm -hmm. If we legalize those drugs, there's not, you know, those pretenses, you know, that's like, it's another lever Mm -hmm. to pull in other words. And I was just wondering if you've had conversations in your groups um Mm -hmm. about that or you know what what you thought and really that was just an excuse to read those quotes because i just find them it's just (laughs) an amazing admission (laughs) of just like because we talk about systemic racism and people like what are you talking about it's just the law the law says there's no drugs and you're like no but 
And then there's it's actually like someone admits it. Yeah. <laughs> they, yeah. They're admitting it and no one And, and this was like, 2016. Like that was that 2016. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think I mean there's so many elements of that I think to kind of react to that quote and the like everyone says systemic racism, but we are unable to identify it in real time as it's happening. Mm-hmm. Right? Like right. I find that to be so commonplace just as a black person participating in the public process in Burlington or for the state. Mm -hmm. We create so many, um, like we corral people into these options and Mm -hmm. we corral our choices into very like limited tracks. Mm -hmm. And then we pretend like there was another option. Right. You know, Um, and I think we do, we repeat that over and over Mm -hmm. and over again. Um, And obviously there's so much research on the war on drugs, but the thing that I want people to remember is that as that was being enacted, there were not just people who were like, oh no, my boss is doing something shady. There were activists who knew exactly what was happening. There were communities who knew exactly what was happening. And yet their voice going on record, influencing the public is limited. Obviously, money, politics, all this stuff. But the question to us today is, who are we not listening to? That's where the rubber hits the road. Mm -hmm. It's like, who are we not listening to? We aren't actually listening to people who are incarcerated. We aren't actually listening to sex workers. We aren't actually listening to people who are unhoused because our nonprofit system to deal with that has all these limitations on how you can be worthy to receive services. Exactly. Yeah. So we are, we are not listening in real time to the demands of people. It's the same thing that's happening is we're saying black lives matter. And then people say all lives matter. We're saying defund the police are saying, well, maybe they need a little extra funding to do yeah. these fun programs or they're going to train each other to be less racist. Like right. we, we, <laughs> it society diverts and it's both people who are explicitly against these things. And it is also the apathetic middle mm-hmm. who doesn't affect tru- me. Yeah. And truly, honestly, a lack of imagination to take a chance to try something new. When we talk about models for police oversight, when we talk mm-hmm. about models for abolition, mm-hmm. it's always, well, what would that look like? Yeah. And no cops you, at all? But who's going to arrest all the criminals? <laughs> We'd have a whole heck of a lot less criminals if yeah. we decriminalize things, it's right? Weird. And it's just, and so I just think, you know, it's really easy, especially the way the rhetoric is now, is to be like, oh, the conservative, right? It's like we're going to point to all these bills against critical race theory. It's also the parents who are not standing with the parents and the students saying, we deserve to know the fullness of our history. I think of this is so related to this whole narrative around um, the boarding schools for Native Americans. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> this is not breaking news. No. To the people who live these things, it is not breaking news. And they're tell- they told us in real time, mm-hmm. but we weren't listening. So who are we not listening to today? Yeah. And who are we not actually 
following their lead in in the I need some of the apathetic middle to be willing to just follow to be yeah. in the passenger seat to add their vote to add their voice to back up the only parent of color in their school system when there's an incident happening at school like all all BIPOC parents in Vermont have to become activists for yeah. their children mm-hmm. basically yeah right for sure and so yeah. when we look at policing it's all about what has been normalized Mm-hmm. And that's where I personally have really um, been like impacted in thinking about decriminalization as a concept. And we did um, in Burlington, they passed a resolution related to sex work. I think there's still, you know, a lot to be done in, in implementing that and, and working through it. Um, but is it is exactly asking the question, why is this illegal? Mm-hmm. Because when we decided to occupy Battery Park and it was going to be a like weird PR thing for the city if they cracked down on right. us. All of a sudden, it wasn't illegal to, to camp. camp in a public park. Mm-hmm. Right. So we know these things are highly variable and they can change. And it's not even, it's actually crap that it was mm-hmm. changed for a bunch of activists oh, yeah. who were choosing to be there as opposed to actually responding to what is humane for people who systemically have been barred from housing, from meaningful, gainful employment, from the services that they need to support their mental health, to be able to maintain employment, like the whole system, right? So I think what is criminalized, everything from the war on drugs to camping ordinances, those are all subjective and they all are open to discussion. It's just really interesting what we focus on and it's also important to acknowledge what we incentivize. We don't just criminalize, but the war on drugs was highly incentivized. And you see the same thing happening for immigrants and the incentive to collaborate with ICE, the financial incentives to be pulled into that industry mm-hmm. um, in wherever you are in, in the quote unquote criminal justice system. Right. Yeah. And 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 with homelessness, there's a there's a huge um point of play with uh, the real estate um, industry as well, right? So I think there's a lot of departures there, but I I wanted to touch base on just the general idea of like, what are things that are illegal Mm -hmm. that we could challenge the, you know, why are they illegal? Because that takes away the the teeth of the police. You know what I mean? Exactly. the, 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 The police don't like... Yeah, you can't whatever. go very far with a because we said so anymore, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's just, just even work on kids. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Generation. I mean, so in Burlington, the great thing is that there is a landscape. So, you know, People for Police Accountability is hyper-focused on this proposal, this charter change, getting onto the ballot, passing, so on and so forth. And there's like a hyper-focus on that as one initiative, one way to get involved. The great thing for Burlington voters is all you have to do is sign at this point. Then we would hope that you would talk to your friends about it, oh, yeah. your neighbors, your family and you would go out to vote so how, right? can, how can let's and yep. how can That's people how can, how can people <laughs> sign it let's get to um, that how can you, people sign you, it if you're listening you can find me no i'm just kidding um you wander around burlington um, <laughs> looking for jess <laughs> no um people for police accountability she has a, she'll have a kayaking paddle 
<laughs> I will. I will. On the top of my card. Okay, so um, that's police for people uh, accountability no. dot com. People for police accountability. People, what did I say? Police, <laughs> police for, for people, people accountability. That's what we have now. That's what we have okay, now. Okay, the opposite. Okay, so uh, people for police academy dot com, and I'll put the link in police the academy. show notes. Uh, police academy. <laughs> did I just say that? You just said police academy. God, I'm getting hot in here. Okay, it's getting hot in here. People for police accountability dot com. Yes. I'll put the link to that in the show notes yes. and I'll copy and paste it so I yep. don't make any mistakes. <laughs> and um, and our email is on there. Um, you can also follow BPD accountability on Instagram and, and, and on Facebook, uh, BPD accountability or no, Battery Park Movement on Facebook because we post where we're going to be collecting signatures. But awesome. if you're at a fun event that's like maybe left leaning, um, we'll probably be there this summer. And also we canvas door to door on Wednesdays and Mondays. So we usually let people know where we're launching off from. You can come by and sign. And people There's, can sign up to help for that, right? Yes. We need some folks. Get a packet from us get trained, learn what you need to know, and then you can help us to collect signatures. So um, I walk around with mine in my bag all the time, but that's one way to get involved in that campaign. The thing is we're able to hyper-focus on that because there's groups working on all other things around the city. Mm -hmm. So there's Women's Justice and Freedom Initiative that's working on a No New Prisons campaign that Mm -hmm. is actually statewide to like not build a new prison. Oh my gosh. Um, There are also people working um, in general and meeting the needs of neighbors. So that's really important. That was huge in the Battery Park movement. You can't expect people to be out there pounding the pavement every night, protesting, getting done at eight, nine o'clock and like go home yeah. and make like dinner. make dinner from <laughs> yeah. their organic veggies. Yeah. And like, or, or what really happens when you're tired is like, you go and like order junk food to get you through the night. And so the community care aspect is also really huge and food, not bombs, food, not cops have, and, and people's kitchen in particular um, have really been a big part of meeting people's needs who are involved in the movement, but also following their networks to meet more people's needs, which is really awesome. Um, And there's just ongoing work throughout the state and throughout the city that needs to continue to happen around racial equity issues. So, you know, again, people for police accountability, we are hyper focused on, on policing and the power of police in Burlington, but there also is a similar measure, hopefully going to be in the next legislative se- yeah. uh, session at the state level yeah. where they're actually because they have some form of a oversight model, but how do we make that actually effective? Right. And um, how do we actually rein in our state police? Exactly. Do you have any specific events coming up or anything? Or we will be anything specific that you uh, want to pitch that people could know about. Um, I'm trying to think of our calendar off the top of my head. Don't know when this is airing. We'll be at the Ramble unofficial city event um, on the 31st of, of July. 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 Okay. Um, we'll also be um, at the Food Not Bombs return to City Hall on August 1st. Mm-hmm. And really from there, like if it's fun. <laughs> yeah, there's a gathering <laughs> if it's of people. fun, <laughs> queer melanated like we're probably going to be there (laughs) so you can find us but really just reach out on the website it's so easy for us to find people and you can stop by need bakery tuesday through no wednesday through saturday um any day and sign the petition oh need bakery wednesday through saturday (laughs) okay i'm putting them on blast (laughs) putting them on blast awesome (laughs) consider yourself warned 
Jess, thanks so much for coming down. This, this is yeah, great talk. Great. Really, yeah, really informative and really fun. Thank you so much. Yeah, appreciate yeah. it. And good luck with your kayaking career. <laughs> <laughs> it's really lawyer. taking off. <laughs> yeah. All right, and that does it for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks. Uh, a little shout out. We've got some new music by David Ratsauce. Thank you, David Ratsauce. For David Ratsauce. David Ratsauce. Big, big shout out. Big, big fan. fan. Yeah. David, David Ratsauce. David Ratsauce. Thank you for the music, and we'll catch you next time.